0: Worship is an encounter with the divine that transforms the worshiper.
1: This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief.
2: On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Eric Huntsman is speaking with us in Good Faith today. Eric, thank you for coming in. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here, Steve. You know, all of my guests know that they're going to be talking about faith and I guess what you'd call spiritual experience, religious experience, but not all of them have recently spent months and months writing a book about it, which was a happy serendipity when I called you. (laughs) Well, you're talking about my book on worship, I suppose. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was something that's been on my
0: mind for years and years, and particularly in my faith community, we have a very organized church and we have lots of requirements and lots of expectations and so when I would talk to people about worship they could always list for me all the things they do to worship. They pray, they go to church, they participate in ordinances, they sing. But when I would ask them what that actually was or to define worship, they sometimes kind of would draw a blank and just kind of stare at me. You know, I'd say, what is worship? Mm-hmm. And once again, they couldn't quite describe what it was intended to do or, how, you know, how it worked. And I'm not sure after months of thinking about it and writing about it, I have an even better better <laughs> definition of it. But I came up with a working definition, which was that worship is an encounter with the divine that transforms the worshiper. I think all people have this innate desire, this yearning, this this drive, if you will, to connect with the divine. And regardless of the faith tradition, the idea is that that religion is supposed to draw them closer to God. And I just wanted to kind of understand that better and how to make that more real in my own life. I was raised in a very faithful family. I learned almost everything I know about God and about worship for my mother. But it's so easy for our worship to become rote or routine. And so I really was wondering both in my own life and in my family's life and for other people how could i share some things that would make those worshipful acts more meaningful more transformative
2: i think that's really interesting what you say that an experience that transforms the worshipper because if we've gone someplace or taken time to do something and nothing happened right Right. Why are we doing it?
0: Well, and this is one of the things I was thinking about when I began that particular project. You know, I pray regularly. I pray daily. But sometimes my prayers are quite routine, you know, and I, I feel like my thoughts or my words aren't escaping the confines of my bedroom. You know, the words aren't passing the ceiling. Or I feel like I'm just going through the motions. And sometimes I'll participate in a church service and, and partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or in the LDS tradition, go to the temple and participate in the rites there and yes, I feel good while I'm there, but I haven't really felt changed. I haven't necessarily felt that I encountered God. And so I, I was really wanting to—I'm one of these people who likes to have kind of a method or a pattern. That's, that's how I work. That's how my brain is wired. And so I wanted to have some steps I could take to make that experience more genuine, more meaningful, more real— and it's interesting, when you, when I heard you restate my definition, I immediately kind of was checking myself because I think for most of us, ideally we want worship to be something we're offering to God. Mm-hmm. In fact, the word liturgy comes from a Greek word, which means a service offered. And so we're certainly thanking God, we're certainly praising God. But the idea is that while we're doing that, we are becoming in some sense more like him or we're being forgiven of our sins or we are being changed for the better. We're being strengthened so that we can do his work. And so that's kind of the tack I took as,
2: as I looked at those mm-hmm. very basic worshipful practices that most, most faith communities have. So let me just draw one out because it's okay. not very meaningful to you. You sing with a little choir. Yeah, that's a little well... choir up the street, 360 friends. You know? <laughs> well known around the world. <laughs> But music was always, I think, part of worship for you. Well, it
0: was. And once again, I trace a lot of this back to my mother. She was a musician herself. She played the violin and the piano. She wasn't much of a singer, but she was a great choral conductor. And so from the earliest age, our entire family had to sing in her little church choirs and her larger choirs. We'd get together in larger regional choirs. We call them state choirs in the LDS church. And so I was always singing with her, but we sang at home as well. Years ago, I was interviewing my friend, Craig Jessup, who was for some time, the director of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And he described music as, the first of the arts, and vocal music is the first of the firsts, because it's this natural way of expressing not just ideas, which we do through words, but feelings, which we do through the melody, through the rhythm, through the dynamics. Mm. So St. Augustine once is quoted as having said that he who sings praise twice, the idea being that the words and the thoughts and the expressions are being carried through the medium of music.
2: Do you remember first realizing, I feel something, something's happening to me while, while singing or, or listening to music?
0: You know, I think it was probably just singing in church or singing at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say, Christians, of course, aren't alone in this in the Jewish tradition. The rabbi may be the teacher, but the person who really leads most of the prayers is the cantor. Uh, and, he, Hazan, and, and the idea was that he was carrying the prayers of the community to God on the melody of his voice. And so it's this idea that that music can express more than just our thoughts, our desires, our thanks. It can express our feelings. There's this wonderful passage in Romans 8 which talks about how the the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that can't be uttered. And this idea that when we're feeling close to God, we're feeling His Spirit. It doesn't always need to be about words. In fact, we could kind of bleed into this idea of prayer as we're talking about music. A lot of times I feel like prayer is like talking at God. We say we're talking to God, but sometimes we're not getting a sense that He's hearing us or responding, so we're just talking at Him. Ideally, we're talking with Him. We're getting some input back. But why does it have to be talking at all? You know, words are oftentimes an inadequate way of expressing ourselves. And so this idea that you can commune with God, that you can share feelings or feel His Spirit, that's something I think that music has taught me, which actually helps me in my more formal prayers.
2: Yeah, I wonder if it bypasses some almost mechanical process. Yeah, I don't know enough about, you know, <laughs> brains and neurology
0: and that kind of thing. But, you know, I know a lot about left and right brain and that kind of thing. And I don't know. There's something to it, I'm sure.
2: In thinking about all of this, in a way, I'm glad I'm not you because anytime I would be in a worshipful mood or mode, I would feel like I should be taking notes on this for my book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, these
0: were ideas so, that I had had for a while and what I ended up doing was researching what communities did, what faith traditions did and what individuals had said and talked about it to try to understand my own experiences. But what I what I want to come back to since you raised the idea of, you know, how I was seeking to make worshipful experiences more genuine, more, more deep, more transformative. I came up with this little formula which is we need to prepare before Concentrate or focus during and be mindful and aware afterwards that in order for a worshipful act, whether it be participating in a ritual or praying or singing or reading a sacred text, going to a sacred place, marking sacred time, it's not going to be different than the ordinary unless we take the time to step back from the daily rhythms of our life, the normal things we're thinking and doing, and really try to focus on the Lord not have it just be an act. Have this sense that we're really in his presence. This kind of came together for me on a trip to the Holy Land a number of years ago. I was leading a tour of Israel and and the Palestinian territories and my sister and her husband had come with us, and my brother-in-law was really excited to go back to the Western Wall. That's the remnants of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And we had been there with the group. But My sister and her husband stayed a couple of days later with us, and so we went on Friday evening, which is, of course, when the Jewish Sabbath begins. So it wasn't just a sacred place. It was a, a sacred time. And in traditional Jewish practice, men and women worship separately. And so I took my brother-in-law on the larger men's side, and we went up to the wall, and I kind of showed him what happened. And we had a nice experience my daughter, who was with us, went over to the women's side, and we had lived in Jerusalem for a year as a family while I was teaching there, and so she she takes this like a fish to water. I mean, she was just in the middle, and she was singing and dancing with the Jewish women, and so we had to wait at the partition for some time for her to finally come back and join us, and so I sometimes feel like I'm a spiritual voyeur. I really am intrigued by how other people worship. And so I was watching some of these women at prayer and standing towards the very Back of the women's section, quite a distance from the wall and not joined in the singing and dancing of welcoming Shabbat, was this elderly Jewish woman who was just clearly very intent in her worship. And she had her sedur or prayer book in one hand, and she was just kind of beating her breast and rocking and almost weeping as she prayed. And, and I felt bad for watching her, but I did. And and all of a sudden she changed. And she raised her hands to the to the heavens, and she suddenly had this beautiful expression of joy on her face, and she was singing and joyful. And then she went back, and I realized this woman was experiencing the full range of emotions with her God. And even though she was in the middle of this very crowded space with some goy, some Gentile watching her, she didn't care because even in that crowded space, she was alone with her God. And that helped me understand the importance of really preparing for worship I call it creating space for worship. Mm -hmm. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ taught that, you know, you should pray in secret. And the King James renders that go in your closet, which just means a secret or private room. But the idea is be alone with God if possible. Well, so often we can't be alone. Sometimes when we really need to talk to him, we're in the middle of a crowd or we're in a car driving or we're at the office. But that doesn't mean that spiritually and mentally – we can't block out the world, we can't take some time to focus on God, that we can't create some mental and some spiritual space for worship, even if we're not in a private place, if that makes any sense. And so I thought, well, what differentiates just singing a song from truly praising God through music? Or what makes reading a sacred text Worshipping. Saint Benedict once said, "You can read the book or you can pray the book. The idea that reading and teaching sacred texts can be an act of worship, an act of prayer. You know what do you do to, to set apart that little time that you're demarcating for your scripture study? Um, why is a chapel or a temple or a mosque or a synagogue or a beautiful grove or a view of the ocean or a mountaintop? Why is that sacred? It's because we take the time to recognize it and separate it out from everything around us. And
2: sometimes we make a huge effort to even get to
0: that place. Right, right. But sometimes we work so hard to get there. And then when we get there, we're so excited to be there or caught up in the group or the activity or the service that we don't step back. I know some of my worst prayers are (laughs) – I love
2: this. My worst
0: prayers. (laughs) My least worshipful prayers are prayers in public. And public can be in front of my congregation or in front of a class or even in front of my own family. Because as as soon as someone else is present, I'm so self-conscious someone is listening. And I sometimes find myself adjusting what I say or how I say it to that audience, almost self-conscious that they're listening. And so I, I find that creating space for worship in that kind of situation requires that i take, close my eyes take a few deep breaths and really think about god rather than my family gathered around me or the congregation i'm standing in front of and make sure that i'm really talking to god and and not to someone else in the muslim tradition there's something called niya which means intent and i don't know enough about islam to know that this is a common practice but from what i read it's not uncommon before someone performs ritual prayer, you know, which has a lot of gesticulation and bowing or reading scripture, the Quran or something, they will state their intent. I will now worship God. I will now read Holy Quran. I will now fast in Ramadan, you know, and just kind of gather themselves and make sure it's for Allah and not for themselves or for others, And in the Jewish tradition, there is this sense of what they call kavanah, which comes from a Hebrew verb, which means to direct, that you need to direct your words and your thoughts and your heart to God. This kind of moves from this idea of preparing for worship to concentrating during. So the rabbis, as they were putting together these beautiful traditional prayers, they said, they're just going to be words unless they are ascending on high. And this idea of maintaining focus during worship, I mean, I think we all run into this sometimes praying before bed and you're tired and your mind starts wandering or even drift off, or you're performing a ritual in your faith tradition and it just becomes words or actions and you reach out and you take the sacrament or the Lord's Supper and, and you're not really thinking about what it is. Um, I can be singing in the morning broadcast with the Tabernacle Choir and if I'm just thinking how much longer till this broadcast is over or listening to the mistake next to me or watching to see how the director's directing and I don't concentrate on singing to God, then I've lost that concentration, I've lost that focus. Our Jewish friends would say, I've lost that kavanah, and I'm no longer singing to God, I'm just singing.
2: I wonder if I can ask two questions that will maybe bring this down to a very personal level. All right. One would be, in any kind of worship, or even not, are there moments when suddenly you feel, either looking back or in what's happening, God is working in my life? Let me
0: give you an example from my son's life, where I saw him worshiping, working in my son's life, and then that helped me realize how he's working in my life. I have a son; he's fourteen now. Um, he's he's autistic, but fairly high functioning. But still, teaching him and doing things in groups has always been difficult. And in our church, um, our young men participate in services and so he was preparing to become a deacon we have a lay priesthood and so young men between 12 and 18 assist with services kind of like an altar boy i suppose in the catholic mm-hmm. tradition and this is a this is a boy that was always hard to keep him Occupied in sitting still through a service, let alone participated. And he would go to Sunday school and church classes and get nothing because he has problems with verbal communication. And so it took us months as a family. Every Monday night we get together as a family and pray and sing and and study and worship together. And so we used a lot of those Monday evenings to prepare him to become a deacon or an altar boy, if mm-hmm. you will, and to participate in being, guests, I guess, what you call a Eucharistic minister, passing the sacrament, as we say in our tradition. I was afraid he wouldn't be able to do it. He'd get confused. He'd be scared. If we bring him late to an event, he's so self-conscious he won't even go in. Mm. And so I got the keys to our church building, and we went in four nights that week and got the sacramental trays out and practiced how he would pass the bread and the water. And so on that Sunday morning, oh, and what I said to him the night before is I said, now, Sam, you're representing the Lord Jesus Christ. This is called the Lord's Supper because on the last night of his life, he had bread and wine, and he shared it with his friends and said, this represents what I've done for you. I said, you know, if he came to our church tomorrow, he would break the bread, and he'd bless it, and he'd give it to each of us. We use water now rather than wine, but he would pass those little cups of water around. And so you need to think of him at the table and that you're standing for him as you give it to people. So the next day we were just holding our breaths, wondering whether he's going to be able to do this. And he was very nervous when he stood up and approached the, the table to to get his tray. But as soon as they put the tray in his hand, he had practiced that, and he knew what to do, and he stood up straight. And he served that sacrament of the Lord's Supper with a reverence I hadn't seen before. Mm. And it was so moving. I mean, just because it was a success. I have a disabled son who did something that was hard for him but I could tell that he felt something. He really felt like Jesus was there with him, that he was working with Jesus. I felt the Spirit. I just wept as I took the bread and water from my son, and when he was finished, he slipped into the pew next to me and my wife, and I put my arm around him. I said, buddy, I said, how do you feel? And he says, I felt proud. I felt confident. And then he stopped, and he said, I felt the priesthood. In our tradition, that's the authority we give people to act and perform ordinances, rituals. And I thought, he really has and we did you know mm. i turned and i looked at our congregation and half the people we go to church with were in tears because they've watched this little boy grow up and couldn't believe he was doing this and they they felt the reverence he felt and i remember thinking this is the way i want to feel every time i partake you know i want to imagine that i'm at the last supper with jesus and his disciples i really want to be able to imagine that I'm part of this. And so when I talk about preparing before and then concentrating during, the term I use in my book is intentionality. Intentionality is not just doing something with an intent or purpose in both philosophy and linguistics. It also refers to the idea of being able to to imagine or or project the thing that you're trying to do. And so for me, it's this idea of imagining that you are actually talking with God when you pray. You're actually singing to Him. You're actually in His presence. And it's then that worship becomes an encounter with the divine. And it's when I feel that spirit or that presence of God that I feel transformed.
2: I think you've, in telling that story about your son, actually answered part of my next question, which was the preparation for an event, even if it's a big event like Easter or Christmas Mm -hmm. that would be celebrated, it's easy to sort of see the ads and the decorations and the music is playing in the background of every shopping opportunity. (laughs) Right, exactly, (laughs) exactly. And you could even get to uh, a meeting to celebrate, a church event to celebrate that and And almost feel like it's over before you actually kind of finally tuned into it. You have done a lot of writing about everything from Advent to Holy Week. Yeah. And now explaining this about your son tells me maybe part of why you have done so much preparation for various events. Right. I mean, it was interesting. We started celebrating Advent.
0: Our faith tradition is actually pretty Spartan. We don't have a liturgical calendar. We go to church every Sunday. um, But we don't have a lot of the traditional liturgical holidays. But I remembered when our daughter was little, and she is very precocious and doesn't deal with any developmental disabilities. But still, as a parent, I wanted to teach her about Jesus and that Christmas was about the birth of the Son of God. And, And I was so concerned about the commercialism and the cultural aspects of Christmas. And we're neither Lutheran nor Catholic nor German or or Swedish or anything, but I don't remember how I stumbled upon Advent. But the idea that since the Middle Ages, many traditional Christians have taken the four weeks prior to Christmas, the Feast of the Nativity, to really prepare for that, I thought, that's really wonderful. We're going to do that. We'll adapt to our circumstances and our faith tradition and our family, but we're going to gather every Sunday evening in the month before Christmas to read scriptures that prophesy about Jesus, to sing together, to share our feelings, to tell stories, even expanded. We actually get together every day in the month before Christmas and have a short Christmas devotional where we tell a Christmas story and we read a Christmas scripture and sing a Christmas carol before we have family prayer and then I felt bad because Easter's really kind of the stepsister of holidays, and it shouldn't be. <laughs> you know, theologically, Good Friday and Easter are the most important things that ever happened according to Christianity, and yet you know, Easter's kind of a moving target because it's not the same day every year, and so it kind of sneaks up on you, et cetera. And and once again, in my faith tradition, we didn't have the idea of Lent or a big preparatory period, but I thought, wow, we can at least have a week. Uh, And what happened was I was serving as the lay bishop of my congregation at the time. And just the way our church schedule worked out, there was a a general conference of our church or what we call a fast Sunday that was coming up on Easter Sunday. And once again, I owe so much of this to my mother. My mother would put together these Christmas and Easter programs with scripture narration and one talk, but lots of music. And it was my first time being in charge of a service. And I wanted to have a big Easter program. I couldn't do it on Easter. And so I thought, well, I'll do it the week before, and that was Palm Sunday. Well, that changed my narration because I had to talk about the triumphal entry and the events of the last week. And so that I thought, well, this is a great way to start. And then aware that my congregation wasn't going to have the traditional Easter service the next week, I published in the the church bulletin a reading list of everything Jesus did during his final week. And over the years, that became the seed of a family devotional that from Palm Sunday to Easter morning, every day our family gathers to read scripture, to talk about Jesus, to sing. And so I ended up writing a book on that. You know How, how can we use that last week to really focus? You know, we decorate so much for Christmas. We have Christmas carols. It's a season. I thought, what can we do to make Easter somewhat comparable to that? You know, I take my children out of school on Good Friday, which is not the tradition in this particular state. But we go to the LDS Temple together, and then we go to our friends at St. Mary's and go to a Good Friday service with the Episcopalians. Then we go out to lunch together, and and we make it a day. Hmm. More. Interesting. Yeah. And it's been, and I started that for my daughter. Then, of course, when my son came along with his challenges, one of the things, if you know anything about many autistic people, the idea of patterns and rituals are really meaningful to them. And so he got down that faith, hope, love, joy of Advent season. And he, he has a little whiteboard, and he would write for each day of Holy Week what Jesus did that day and draw a little picture. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, so what I did for them blessed me and my wife because it focused us more on sacred time and sacred memory. You know, that's another part of worship, I think. What has God done for us in the past? What is he doing now? What will he do for us in the future? And so much of ritual looks back to the great acts of God mm-hmm. in salvation history. So for our Jewish friends, for Passover, Passover or... and for Christians, the Lord's Supper, and, and, and you know, that, that idea of connection.
2: The word I'm looking for is inspiring. Oh, you're kind. <laughs> because uh, because I'm looking at the whiteboard, I need to have at least mentally mm-hmm. for that week, instead of thinking, "Oh yeah, sometime I've got to review
3: that."
0: But you know, this idea of creating space for worship—I use the term "space" not just in terms of locality. I use it in terms of time. I use it in terms of mental state, and it doesn't just have to be a weekly Sabbath or a annual holiday or a sacred place. So, for instance, if prayer is a regular part of your worship routine, how do you create space for that morning or evening prayer? Or for that quick prayer in your car in the middle of traffic? You know, How do you do that? Um, if reading sacred texts is part of your daily routine, how can the kitchen table where at 530 in the morning under a single light bulb, you open the Bible, how can that be a sacred time like Easter morning, and a sacred place like a church, a synagogue, a mosque, or a temple. That's what I mean when I think, when I say create space for worship. So it
2: could be a space physically. It could be a a, time a, a, space, temporally. Of, a space of time anywhere where you invite or connect with the presence of God. Exactly. exactly. That's beautiful. And that's something I can carry with me anytime, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Nice to hear about that. Uh, you talked about preparation and mindfulness during which leaves one more question open. What do we do afterwards? Yes.
0: And, you know, this is something years ago, I, I went to Saturday evening mass with a couple of my buddies. My my best friend was Roman Catholic, and we were going out Saturday night. I think his mom knew there was no chance we were going to get up early in the morning. He was going to go to mass with her in the morning. So he said, make sure you go to mass before you go out. I'm LDS, so this was kind of foreign to me. I didn't know you could go to church on a day other than Sunday. So I went to mass with my friends, and they're kind of rowdy guys. And their whole demeanor changed when they entered the church. You know, They crossed themselves. They genuflected. And I remember Keith coming back from taking Eucharist, taking communion. And the expression on his face was so different. His hands were folded and he was so reverent. And it took him another hour or two before he got rowdy again. I mean there was kind of this lasting effect. And I thought this has changed him. Well, the next morning I went to my Latter-day Saint meeting and and took the sacrament. I thought, now, am I going to be changed? Am I going to walk out of this meeting different than I was before? Mindfulness has a lot to do, if you're into mindfulness meditation, about just being aware of the moment and what you're doing. But it also has to do with what happens afterwards. And so when I get off my knees from praying or I come out of a service or I finish singing a song or I finish reading the scriptures – I like to take a few moments, just as I do to prepare before, to be aware afterwards. What's happened here? What have I felt? Um, how am I different? What do I need to change? I'm a little bit of a journaling addict. And so sometimes in the evenings when I'm quickly writing about the day, I always make the effort to write down one or two things then, when I was worshiping that way, I was different. So, if I read a scripture, what was a thought that came to me? Or when I was praying about a problem, how did I feel afterwards? Or I've gone to church or gone to temple, how am I a better person now? And so that's part of this whole idea of worship being an encounter with deity that transforms us. Uh, We're told to worship with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. And mind is what we think about God, and heart is what we feel about God. And I think originally that text meant, with all your strength, how intensely do you worship during the moment? But I like to think of it in terms of, how do I go forth from worship to serve God from that point on? So that's the being aware afterwards, being changed afterwards. Mm. You know, I like to think of of worship as kind of like an iceberg, you know, only the tip is above the surface. And I think it's so easy to quantify or try to evaluate our worship from the words and actions that we see when someone's worshiping. But to me, the heart and the soul and the feelings and the intent, that's the, the greater part of the iceberg that's below the surface, if that makes any sense. That's what really makes something worship, not the outward
2: actions or words that we see. Perfect. Eric Huntsman. thank you for speaking with us in good faith.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I hope it was interesting to you.
2: Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear from a panel of listeners discussing some of the ideas brought up by our guest, Dr. Eric Huntsman, back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. What is worship to you? And what makes those occasions, whether personal or in a community, more meaningful to you? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Gavin and Sherilyn Grooms are parents of seven and have ten grandchildren. They're both musicians, as are all of their kids and in-laws. They've been married nearly 33 years. Career-wise, they work with foreign exchange students from around the world. Aaron Christian Carson is a filmmaker who grew up near the ocean and moved to the mountains of Colorado. He and his wife just had their first child two months ago, and their second as well, a set of boy and girl twins. Rachel Sherman lives in Provo, Utah, and spends most of her time and money going out to eat. She's a producer for Thinking Aloud
3: on BYU Radio. As we were listening to Eric, what really caught my attention, especially initially, was the statement when he says, going through the motions. I mean, how often do we find ourselves catching ourselves in a situation where we're going through the motions especially where we're talking about our worship for me i you know i'm a bit older than everyone else here but i find myself uh going through that motion perhaps more often than i used to due to experience or getting a little tired a little old age whatever that might be but uh for me it really kind of hit me kind of in in between the eyes and realizing wow Going through the motions, that's that's something I'm going to have to pay a little more attention to.
4: <laughs> yeah, I am, I guess, younger, and I feel like I'm already caught up in going through the motions in life, especially when I'm sitting in, in our church service during the first hour when we hear people talking. I'm sitting next to my husband, and I, I see my husband just scrolling through his phone because that's the de facto thing to do when something ha- is happening in the background, and sometimes I, I look at him and I'm judging him like, why don't you put that away? You don't look like you're paying attention. And it relates back to what Eric said about you, you're you worshiping for how it looks, for how other people are perceiving your your spirituality, I guess. And I am just so, <laughs> I, I'm, I really need to work on putting meaning in behind what what I'm doing in church. At the same time, I'm wondering if you guys think there's any value in going through the motions themselves. Is it worth it, even though you might not be getting anything out of it? Is there value inherent in the motion itself?
5: For some reason, my mind automatically is going to rock climbing <laughs> because Great. I love to rock climb. When I'm rock climbing, even if I'm not intentionally doing it, the fact that I'm using my body, let's say it's whatever your workout is, you know, lifting weights, at least you're still getting a workout. So I would say yes. Yes. I bring up the rock climbing because I think in terms of going through the motions, I never get to a wall or go outside on on a little hike and set up with my rope and think, what am I doing here? Or, you know, just go at it without even thinking about uh, and appreciating what it is. Like I'm there and I am so focused and excited and engaged it's automatically new each time. And so I wondered, like, how can worship be that way? Because it's it's a beautiful thing. We're we're doing it by choice. But I wonder if it's the fact that we do it week over week or morning prayer after morning prayer that it makes it routine.
1: Aaron, I think that it is important to go through the motions. And I I was actually talking to one of my daughters about this a couple weeks ago. She has little children, and you have you have twin babies. And as you go to church and you go through the motions— sometimes, especially when we have young families, it's difficult because we're there and then we're out in the hall bouncing the babies. And we're not, we are going through the motions because we're there, but we're not getting a whole lot out of the experience because we're taking care of little children. But then I realized, and as I was discussing this with my daughter, we do go through the motions. And as we do, the children are learning that it's important to be in, in our services on Sunday. They're learning, even though they may be disruptive, we are at church together as a family, and we are, you know, singing and worshiping and partaking of the sacrament. And the children, it becomes a habit in their lives so that when they're older, they are participating as well.
3: You know, Rachel, you brought something up. It was one of the other things that really kind of hit me a little bit was this being a little self-conscious, being, you know, what is our public, you know, worship look like and all and I, I i hope you don't mind me sharing a little bit of that. something is a bit of a struggle for me right now actually uh my background is i i'm comfortable in being in front of people i'm comfortable in a sort of a performance manner but i've had a few comments over the last few months from people who attribute my public expression either through prayer or through uh speaking of god as a performance. To be honest with you, it's really caused me a lot of heartache because I realized for myself, am I being real or is it being perceived by others as a performance, as a, something more than just how I really feel in, inside. And so it, it really has caused me to uh, review in my own heart and mind, what am I doing? Is it, is it real? Is it real?
4: How can you tell Have you guys had experiences with whether like you feel like the experience you're having is is meaningful to you, or does it feel the same as going through the motions?
1: I think so. In fact, I was thinking when Eric talked about music, one of the first things he spoke of was how music uh, is is the first of the um arts and then vocal is the first of the first i really loved hearing what he was saying about that and it reminded me of an experience i had um a little over a year ago uh, in our local church every year in late in the fall we have the children's program and i remember last year when we had this program at the end of the program i just burst into tears it was and i had such a strong spiritual feeling and that these children were so precious and so dear to the savior and it was such a it was a humbling experience and it was a beautiful experience that this the simple innocent music from these precious little children made me feel so strongly i am also a, a choir director in my local church and there have been times when Because I've done it for so many years, 19 years and counting, sometimes it feels like it's just repetitive. But what I have in more recent years realized that the music that I am helping to provide by being the choir director is providing others with the spiritual experience that they need because music is so powerful.
3: Certainly, I think that we need to prepare, right? I mean, if we want to do... Well, in our musical presentation, when we're worshiping God, we need to prepare. And so, as Eric talked about these three areas of worship, I think it's a natural process for us to be able to prepare ourselves as we are not only learning the notes but reflecting on the words. And so often these words are so beautiful. Many of these words may come from Scripture. And that it really does connect with us in, in a way that... Um, just worship through through prayer or just through words seems to, seems to not connect. I think for some of us uh, as as much as as others, but um, I think the last thing that I remembered uh, and I appreciated what Eric talked about was his fourteen year old autistic son and how he helped his son prepare to perform the sacrament and. Uh, and that this touching moment as everyone was so focused in on how this young man was going to do in his first experience. I don't know how anyone else felt about that moment and and how you might have imagined being there and uh, loving this young man and seeing him grow to this point to where he was able to perform with such uh, worship, with such reverence.
5: I thought it was a beautiful story. And it's amazing to me how worship transcends time in that he could tell that story. And I was there. I was picturing it. I was imagining the child, imagining the audience. And and I was able to have a worshipful experience just hearing that story and and seeing the change and the reverence come over them in my mind. I, I had it myself as if I was there. And it was I felt uh, slightly changed almost to the degree as if I was there. And I think that's one of the beautiful powers of, of faith.
1: It gave us a great example of what we can do as parents. And so many of us don't have children with special needs, but what more can we do? And that's what I was thinking of as he was telling the story. Our youngest is sixteen now, and what more can I do to help him prepare? He talked about um, these wonderful, you know, nightly activities with music and scripture that he's during the Advent, you know, time for Christmas and also for Easter. I thought that was wonderful, and I'm. I am definitely cooking up things in my mind that I want to do. I want to do some of these things because I think I can help my children prepare better for Sunday worship, which in turn uh, will help me prepare and and focus and not just go and go through the motions in church services on Sunday.
4: Something that Eric talked about that goes along with that that I think is interesting was creating a space for worship. And I think that goes along with preparation because I remember – like Eric, my mom was instrumental in my uh, spiritual upbringing, and um, on Sundays, she would just play church music on her on her iPad or whatever it was, and sometimes it was really cheesy. I'm like, Mom, why are you playing this? But it really did help the house feel like a different place on Sunday than it did every other day of the week. So I, I'm i really interested in, in what else we can do to like create the space um, for worship that helps us feel differently or more meaningful about it.
5: That's funny, because my first thought was, if your mom was playing it on an iPad, that, that reveals a lot about your age. Right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I think we had cassettes listening my to My mom had a record player. player. <laughs>
3: you know, it's interesting how we come from different places. Uh, w- when I grew up, my, my mother was actually Unitarian, and my father was uh, agnostic. And so my religious experience as a youth was a little different. And also when the time came to, to know Christ— Uh, in in a way that I had never known before, it it allowed me to place myself, and as he said, Eric said, imagine you are with God. And for much of my adult life, as I have worshipped, as I have done things, whether it's personal worship or in a public place, I've always tried to place myself... That God himself is by my side, and, and what do I do in order to honor, to, to love, and respect uh, what he has done for me on a, on a personal basis? And that connecting to afterwards, you know, how have I changed? I think there have been times where I feel like maybe I went through the motions, but when you are through that moment of worship, did something change? Did I change somehow? Did I come away with a mindset, a thought, and something that perhaps I could do to better love God? And uh, and if that happened, then certainly I may have gone through the motions somewhat, but I did pick up a a morsel. I did find something in my life that I could and need to improve on. I learned something. I found a way to become a better person.
5: I I noticed as a kid, um, I grew up with a family who was very um, consistently attendant of church. and um, So it was second nature to me. In fact, my faith was very much a foundation when emotional things were difficult at school or even at at home. Part of my upbringing was very difficult. A lot of it was wonderful. But I noticed as a child, it was a lot easier to, to grasp onto things of faith. And in my 20s and early 30s, uh, I've seen, to some degree, an increase in my understanding and my desire and ability to act on the things that I believe and do good in the world. But I also have seen something of a, uh, of a decrease, and I, I don't know if it's part of the magical... You know, when you're a child, Christmas is so miraculous and, you know, everything that comes out of your stocking is amazing. As you get older, it's a little more like, okay, it's just another thing and I can buy that, you know, when I work for half an hour. Um, So I'm trying to find things now. And and what I've realized is one of the things that most helps me is to actively take, even if it's just a minute, I have a goal to read one single verse of scripture a day. Because I know if I read one verse, I might read two. I might read several. Um, and get even more out. But if I don't do the one, I might not do it at all. And so that small act has helped me to, to try and get uh, increase my faith.
4: That's a really good idea. Sometimes I think our expectations for what we should do are really high.
2: <laughs> You're listening to a conversation in good faith with a group of listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Eric Huntsman.
3: Back to the conversation. Uh, you're, it's funny, because you you're talking to the elderly Jewish woman at the wall, and how he states that she was going through the, all the emotions, that he could observe her going through perhaps what would be, you know, in a term of repentive uh, emotion, uh, and then going through all those steps. And for me, uh, that act of being able to um, have a real conversation with God. Uh, so often happens outside the walls of the, the worship place. Uh, it, goes, it, it goes in a place where you know, timing is, is right. My heart, uh, my mind, my body, everything seems to be ready in tune to be able to have this real conversation with with God and it seems to me that that's what he was describing with this with this uh woman uh there in uh, Jerusalem and that uh as she went through all those emotions it did not matter uh, when she, he said that i was thinking of the disciple stephen who uh saw God while he was being stoned to death so here's this violent experience that he's having and yet perhaps the most spiritual uh, or most uh, uh, connection with God was happening at the same time. So it seemed to me to kind of help me have a better understanding to know that this can happen. We can have these experiences wherever we happen to be uh, and, and all if we are prepared and ready for ready to have that conversation with God.
1: That reminds me of an experience I had when I was 18, um, as you ask, having a, a spiritual confirmation, if you will, in a place, an unexpected place. And it wasn't completely unexpected, but it, it was unusual for me. Um, I spent the summer in Boston at uh, Tanglewood working on music during the summer, uh, with a group of youth from all over the country. And uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, I was the only Mormon. Um, There were a lot of kids uh, from different faiths. And we had the wonderful opportunity of singing in multiple different churches of different faiths. And as we went to each place, we had this common music that we, we did together. And I just remember, as everyone was taking their communion, I had a very strong confirmation of my own faith as each of them had confirmations of their faith in these different church edifices, beautiful buildings that we attended and sang. And I just remember what a wonderful experience that was for me to be able to participate in in other faiths during that summer uh, and be with all of these young people having the same common experience with music.
5: We talked earlier about praying Uh, in public, um, and sometimes how it changes the way the words we use. And I have to consciously think to myself, who am I praying to? And am I praying uh, to God? But that was one of my favorite stories of the Jewish woman being so free with her emotions. Uh, It's something I strive for and, and wish that everybody could experience. And I have had moments in my life, there was a time I was Uh, 20 years old. I was in Mexico serving a uh, church mission, teaching people about Jesus Christ. And in one particular day, uh, I was with a family and some things happened in that home that uh, were really sad. A, A child was getting spanked and it reminded me of some painful experiences I had growing up. And something about it made me start to feel really emotional. And I didn't know what it was, but it was like, I need to walk out of here. And I started walking to the backyard of this little home in Mexico next to the coast, uh, no fences. And I just got in the backyard and it was like, I just need to be alone. And as soon as I got there, I just squatted down and just started praying and immediately just started bawling. And I didn't even know what, what was happening to me, but emotions were coming out. And in short, I was able to be this Jewish woman, this young <laughs> Uh, boy weeping in public. And it probably lasted 15 minutes where I was just crying and letting my heart out to God and, and feeling a change of heart and a freedom from a weight and a sadness that I'd carried for most of my life up to that point. And I imagined in my mind, even as I was talking to him, People walking by, and and possibly groves of of curious travelers <laughs> looking. Um, in fact, I think it was a tourist town, uh, and I didn't care at all. I I was like, let the whole world be there. I am here in my moment with my God, being changed, and it is beautiful, and I am loving it.
3: Aaron, thank you so much. That's a beautiful story. It 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 does remind us all about the experiences we've had when we relate with God in our own personal way and with without the ability of really describing it because can it really be described when we have these moments when it's just you and God and it does not matter who else is there or nearby or whatever the event is occurring. It is this really specific relationship, uh, this really specific event and, uh, that occurs, that causes this movement. It causes us to, to, to feel like we're not alone. Because so often, we all will find ourselves there, won't we? We'll, we'll find ourselves a place where there is no one else but God who can lift, who can guide, who can love us the way, way he can. When I finally found God in my life, as a little bit older, for me it was much of that same experience, this very one-on-one relationship where also things that needed to be lifted from me that need, I needed to be healed from, and that healing wasn't going to occur but through God. And uh, I know Eric mentioned very early on and, and, and quoted from Paul the, the, undis- the indescribable uh, aspect of our relationship or our interaction with God?
4: Some of the most, um, some of the best prayers I've ever had, I guess I would say, are ones that were born of just like intense emotion more than anything else. I didn't start with the words. I just started feeling really bad about something or really good about something, but most of the time bad. And I would <laughs> I would pray and I don't, like the words, they were not articulate. It wasn't well thought out. I didn't use very formal language, like thou. Um, but I, I I would say the same thing over and over again in my head, and it was born of emotion. And I'm sitting here trying to think of an experience that I've had that you guys are talking about with God, but it's so hard to even think of one because it's not constructed with language at all. All, all I remember about those experiences is, is just emotion. So <laughs> it is hard to think of the words to, to describe those kinds of things and hard to even remember in the terms you're used to.
5: I think it's funny how you say most things are... It seems the hard things that we come to God because that's when we we need him most. But there was a time that I prayed to him with joy. And it was uh, I was in my living room. I don't even remember what the circumstances were, but it was one of those few moments where it's like, I just want to tell him thank you, like really thank you, like a lot of strong emotions. And I didn't even know how to express it with words. So I just started dancing. <laughs> Nobody was in my house. Um, I think I had music turned up way loud, too. And I was just partying. It probably looked like a goofball. Nobody knew about it, but it was just a beautiful, like, God, I am dancing to you. And I don't think I've ever done that in my life. Who knows if I ever will, but it was so fun. Um, and he knew what I was saying. And, um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes you don't have words.
1: I think God knows each of us. I know God knows each of us very, very intimately more than we even know ourselves. And I remember an experience I had similar to yours where I was thanking God actually for my future husband, who's sitting next to me, uh, wasn't asking, you know, wasn't asking for any kind of confirmation or anything, I'm supposed to marry him, at the, I already knew. But at that moment of of giving thanks and sharing, showing gratitude for this man that I had met and I was so in love with, I I did receive a very powerful witness, a very powerful answer, this is the man you're supposed to marry. And it wasn't only it, it was actually a physical experience. It it was and so and the Lord knew that I needed that experience because of a few uh external forces that that came at us a little bit after that. Um, So I was able to fall back on that experience and know with a surety that I I had made the right decision. So the Lord knew that I needed that, and it was a really remarkable and very memorable experience that was not necessarily just from asking a question.
5: I have some friends who are very logical, and I noticed that in their lives, oh, everything makes sense, so this is what God wants me to do. And others who are very emotional, and it feels right. So that's what I'm going to do. And I, I love how God can speak to us in our own unique ways.
2: That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists and especially Eric Huntsman for sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation and welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Reach out anytime via email ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find all of our shows archived online for listening and sharing at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith or subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced with help from Marcus Smith and Christine Knuckleby. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in Good Faith.